0: Welcome to Pillar & Ground Podcast. I'm Will Nettleton, Pastor of Mission and Worship here at LNPC. And this episode is a Pillar & Ground Questions episode where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. Today, we're continuing our look at the report of the PCA's Ad Interim Committee on Human Sexuality. And specifically, we've been looking at the 12 statements that begin the report and summarize the whole report's content. And so just by way of reminder, this report was overwhelmingly received by the commissioners of the 2021 General Assembly. And as Brian's been saying in earlier episodes, uh, we believe that these 12 statements affirm clear biblical doctrine and promote pastoral considerations and care. So in other words, both truth and love are incorporated into each of these solid and really helpful statements. Today we're digging into Statements 5, 6, and 8, and you don't have to be a numbers whiz to recognize that we are skipping number 7 right there. Statement 7 is on sanctification, and it's actually a little bit longer than the other ones, and it's so central to this whole conversation that we thought it would be wise to give it its own episode. So we'll look at that together uh, next week. For this week, we'll be looking at Statement 5, which is on concupiscence, Statement 6 on temptation in statement eight on impeccability, and specifically that's going to be the impeccability of Jesus. As with the other statements, each of these begins with what the committee affirms on these topics. And then there's a second paragraph that includes a a nevertheless that will provide further pastoral context. So I'll begin by reading statement five on concupiscence, and then we can spend some time unpacking that together. We affirm that impure thoughts and desires arising in us prior to and apart from a conscious act of the will are still sin. We reject the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence, whereby disordered desires that afflict us due to the fall do not become sin without a consenting act of the will. These desires within us are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are themselves idolatrous and sinful." Nevertheless, we recognize that many persons who experience same-sex attraction describe their desires as arising in them unbidden and unwanted. We also recognize that the presence of same-sex attraction is often owing to many factors, which always include our own sin nature and may include being sinned against in the past. As with any sinful pattern or propensity, which may include disordered desires, extramarital lust pornographic addictions, and all abusive sexual behavior. The actions of others, though never finally determinative, can be significant and influential. This should move us to compassion and understanding. Moreover, it is true for all of us that sin can be both unchosen bondage and idolatrous rebellion at the same time. We all experience sin at times as a kind of voluntary servitude. So that is Statement 5 on concupiscence, and as we consider Statement 5, it's important to remember what the committee has already affirmed previously, especially in Statement 3 on original sin. So in that statement, they talked about how when Adam and Eve sinned, it meant that all of their posterity inherited their guilt and their sin nature. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans 5 when he talks about, "...by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners." And the doctrine of original sin tells us that that corruption is comprehensive. As Westminster Confession of Faith six two states it, Adam and Eve became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. In other words, there was no part of Adam and Eve that was left unaffected by sin. And that comprehensively corrupted sin nature has been passed down to every human being born after them, By ordinary generation. Of course, as Shorter Catechism Question 22 reminds us, there is one very significant person who was not born by ordinary generation, but was conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her yet without sin. Of course, that being Jesus. If you've ever wondered why the doctrine of the virgin birth matters, just as a side note, this is why. If Jesus was born the same way you and I were by ordinary generation, then he could not avoid inheriting a sin nature like the rest of us. And so his uh, sacrifice on the cross would be of no no value to us because he would be a sinner like us. So Jesus was born without sin. But for the rest of us, the Bible tells us the apple does not fall far from the tree. As David says in Psalm 51, we were born in sin. Also in that statement on original sin, the authors of the committee of the committee report pointed out a distinction between this inherited corruption itself and the fruit of that corruption. And this is where they talked about the distinction between original sin and actual sin. So they made a distinction here between the roots and the fruit. Now remember when the Writers of the committee report talk about actual sin, they are not using actual the way that you and I often use that in everyday parlance. They're not, they don't uh, mean real or not real. Uh, What they mean by that is sin that is an act rather than sin that's a disposition or an inclination only. So for example, if we think of the sin of stealing, the desire to take that which is not ours, that covetous inclination would be the original sin. And then the act of taking the thing would be actual sin. It would be an act uh, carrying out that original sin. And that distinction between original sin and actual sin is what brings us to the committee statement on concupiscence. Now, even as I've said that word a few times uh, here on the podcast, you may think, I have never heard that word before. Concupiscence is a somewhat dusty theological term, it's difficult to say, it's harder to spell, but what it has to do with is those disordered desires that are a result of the fall, and particularly the ones that we might call unconscious desires. If a desire to commit some sin pops up out of nowhere, is it still sin, even if I resist that desire? It's an important question. To go back to the example of stealing, imagine a scenario where I see a delicious pie cooling on my neighbor's windowsill, and the thought occurs to me, what if I just took it? But then, being a Christian, I resist that, and I say, no, that would be wrong. She worked very hard on that. It's not mine, and I should not sin against my neighbor and God by taking it. So in that scenario, did I sin? I I mean, I didn't actively choose to think about stealing. That thought kind of came out of nowhere. And when it did, as soon as I realized what was happening and kind of came to myself, I I reasoned with myself and stopped myself from doing it. So did I sin? The committee uh, rightly points out that in the Roman Catholic understanding of concupiscence, that inclination to sin, the desire that seemingly came out of nowhere, is a result of the fall. But according to the Roman Catholic view, it doesn't become sin until I act on it. So they would argue in our pie-stealing scenario that I did not sin. The Protestant reformers disagreed with that, and they actually argued that even the inclination to sin is itself sin. This is where that distinction between original sin and actual sin is helpful. The desire would fall under the category of original sin. It, it popped up out of nowhere because it's, it was in our nature to desire those things that we ought not to desire. But it is still sin. John Calvin phrases it this way in his Institutes. He says But between Saint Augustine and us, we can see that there is this difference of opinion. While he concedes that believers, as long as they dwell in mortal bodies, are so bound by inordinate desires that they are unable not to desire inordinately, yet he dare not call this disease sin, content to designate it with the term weakness. He teaches that it becomes sin only when either act or consent follows the conceiving or apprehension of it. That is, when the will yields to the first strong inclination. We, on the other hand, deem it sin when a man is tickled by any desire at all against the law of God. Indeed, we label sin that very depravity which begets in us desires of this sort. And so the Ad Interim Committee affirms the traditional Protestant understanding of concupiscence. These desires within us are are not mere weaknesses or inclinations to sin, but are themselves idolatrous and sinful. And so to bring this back around to the topic of same-sex attraction, uh, what this means is that we are affirming that even the attraction itself is sinful. It's not simply potentially sin, it is itself sin. But as the committee points out in the Nevertheless portion of Statement 5, unwelcome desires that are sinful are not unique to same-sex attracted Christians. We all struggle with sinful and disordered desires that seem to arise against our conscious will. The Apostle Paul describes this reality in Romans chapter 7, verses 21-24. through 24. He writes, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I think we can all identify with the experience that Paul describes there. We find ourselves doing things we don't want to do and not doing the very things that we want to do. And that's a common struggle that all Christians have, not simply same sex attracted Christians. And so I think for the rest of us who who don't have this particular struggle, it ought to move us towards great sympathy to our brothers and sisters who are faithfully seeking to follow Jesus, even as they struggle with remaining sin, because they are doing that in the same way that we all are. We're all waging war against unwelcome desires, and we all know the difficulty of seeing uh, actual victory happen there. The report actually includes a really helpful example of this, who does not feel the passion of sinful anger rising up without conscious deliberation or decision, even in contradiction to a prior deliberate decision to deal with our anger problem? It's a great example who among us has not uh, had a had a blow up or a frustration with a family member or perhaps a child and thought, okay, I've got to be better on that," and then found themselves doing it again. That is the same struggle that our uh, brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attraction are struggling with, a desire that they are seeking to put to death, uh, but that yet remains. So we should not treat these dear brothers and sisters as as if they are in some wildly different category than we are. Uh, That is essentially the pastoral payoff of what the committee says in statement number uh, five on concupiscence. Statement number six is on the nature of temptation, and it reads like this. We affirm that Scripture speaks of temptation in different ways. There are some temptations God gives us in the form of morally neutral trials, and other temptations God never gives us because they arise from within as morally illicit desires. When temptations come from without, the temptation itself is not sin, unless we enter into the temptation. But when the temptation arises from within, it is our own act and is rightly called sin. Nevertheless, there is an important degree of moral difference between temptation to sin and giving in to sin, even when the temptation is itself an expression of indwelling sin. While our goal is the weakening and lessening of internal temptations to sin, Christians should feel their greatest responsibility not for the fact that such temptations occur, but for thoroughly and immediately fleeing and resisting the temptations when they arise. We can avoid entering into temptation by refusing to internally ponder and entertain the proposal and desire to actual sin. Without some distinction between, one, the illicit temptations that arise in us due to original sin, and two, the willful giving over to actual sin, Christians will be too discouraged to make every effort at growth in godliness and will feel like failures in their necessary efforts to be holy as God is holy. God is pleased with our sincere obedience, even though it may be accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. In Statement 6, the committee helpfully distinguishes between temptations that come from outside of us and temptations that arise from within. And that distinction helps us understand how we should answer the question uh, okay, is temptation sin, or is it only sin if you give in to it? And you can perhaps see the theological difficulty here. I mean, we know that Jesus was tempted. We also know that Jesus never sinned, so perhaps we should say that temptation cannot be sin, because if it is, then Jesus is a sinner, and again, we would all be in trouble if that were the case. The distinction between inner and outer temptations helps us answer the question, is temptation sin? The answer, of course, is, it depends. Jesus' temptation was not sin, because it came from outside of him. Satan was the one tempting him, and Jesus resisted perfectly. But there is another kind of temptation that arises from within us. We see this referenced in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The Puritan John Owen summarizes the distinction this way. Now, when such a temptation comes from without... It is unto the soul an indifferent thing, neither good nor evil, unless it be consented unto. But the very proposal from within, it being the soul's own act, it is sin. In the Nevertheless portion of Statement 6, the committee helpfully reminds us that even when temptation comes from within, and is therefore sin, there are degrees of moral difference between that temptation and actually giving in and acting upon it. Now, bear in mind, that does not excuse those temptations or nullify the need to mortify them, but it does helpfully remind us of what larger Catechism 150 says. All transgressions of the law of God are not equally heinous. To have temptation arise is not the same thing as giving into it. And for the Christian, the emphasis should be on fleeing and resisting temptations as they arise, rather than being paralyzed with anguish that they continue to occur. And then the committee also reminds us what the confession says in 16-6. God is pleased with our sincere obedience, even though it may be accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections, as of course it often is. Statement 8 on impeccability uh, talks about the sinlessness of Jesus. It reads like this, We affirm the impeccability of Christ. The incarnate Son of God neither sinned in thought, word, deed, or desire, nor had the possibility of sinning. Christ experienced temptation passively in the form of trials and the devil's entreaties, not actively in the form of disordered desires. Christ had only the suffering part of temptation, where we also have the sinning part. Christ had no inward disposition or inclination unto the least evil, being perfect in all graces and all their operations at all times." Nevertheless, Christ endured from without real soul-wrenching temptations, which qualified him to be our sympathetic high priest. Christ assumed a human nature that was susceptible to suffering and death. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Statement 8 helpfully clarifies the type of temptation that Jesus suffered. As we stated previously, Jesus did not sin, and so the temptation that he suffered could not have arisen from within him. And it might be tempting to think, well, okay, then how can Hebrews say he was tempted in every way that we are? I mean, can the same sex attracted Christian trust that Jesus withstood temptation every bit as tempting as what he or she faces? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity has what I think is a really helpful quote about how because Jesus never gave into temptation, he's actually the only one who has ever experienced its full strength. Indeed, we might say that Jesus knows something of temptation that we cannot because we so easily give into it. Here's what Lewis writes. No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. So Jesus, in his temptation, experienced a degree because of his strength of will, because of his resistance, that we will never know. So to summarize the three statements that we've looked at today, our desires, which seem to pop up out of nowhere, which we then resist by the power of the Spirit, are not simply inclinations towards sin. They are sin themselves. And so that would include same-sex attraction. Temptations which arise from within us are also sin, even when we ultimately resist them. And the good news is that Christ, our perfect sinless Savior, never sinned because His temptations were always external. External. But because he resisted them perfectly and never gave in, he knew the strength of them to a degree that we never will. I think the implications that all of this has for our understanding of same-sex attraction is significant. It means that the attraction itself is sin. We've said that, uh, even if it's never acted upon. But it also means that same-sex attracted believers are not a special class of sinner. We all have sinful desires that remain after our conversion, which we are called to flee from and put to death. And the good news is that we all have a perfect Savior in Jesus Christ, whose blood atones for all our sins, both original and actual. So whatever our struggles, whatever our sins, when we gather together, we hope in the same Savior and can sing together the great last stanza of Come Ye Sinners. Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of His blood. Venture on Him, venture wholly. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. We are all of us helpless sinners. And praise God that we have a perfect Savior in Jesus, that we can venture on Him and trust completely. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope you will join us for future episodes.